Romans chapter 4. Have you ever ex experienced that, there, that, that there's a certain a personality type? A, uh, the, the security guard who thinks he's a policeman? Do you know what I'm talking about? Where it just, maybe, maybe their life's not so great and you give them a little bit of authority and it just goes to the head and they go a bit wrong. Um, Mike, we're talking about, right? With this young adults camp business. <laughs> now we all have to endure his petty tyranny. Um, I'm just jealous because I can't go. Hey, why don't I read to you from uh, Romans chapter 4. We'll go from, verses, uh, from verse 13 through to the end of the chapter. Uh, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be uh, heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. It's, it's, here's, here's the fun things. We, we've, we've had two weeks in a row now of, of dedications, which means plenty of visitors coming through the doors of our church. And we thought what we'd do is just plow on ahead with our sermon series through the book of Romans, which means we have churches full of visitors whilst we deal with parts of the Bible that are to do with Old Testament covenants and circumcisions and, and Father Abraham's, which is um, a bit of fun. It's also an important part of the Bible that perhaps we don't consider all of the time. Um, last week, Mike did the dance with the Father Abraham, kind of giving us some context. I don't let that tiger off the chain very often, because once I do, it's almost impossible to get him back on. And nobody wants that. Um, what you're encountering is that as a church, we have been making our way through the Book of Romans. And the Book of Romans is here to tell us the central truths of Christianity. It's here answering the question, how is it that a person can come to belong to God? The most central question of our faith. What is it that causes a person to belong to God? And in some ways, the message of Romans thus far has been quite simple. Quite, I could summarize in a, in a few minutes what has taken us more than a month to work through. And yet in these simple truths, there is also a profound depth to them. The ground covered thus far, for those just joining us now, um, is that Romans is a letter in the New Testament, which explains the core message of Christianity. That message begins with some bad news. There is something wrong in this world, not just in this world, but in me, the problem of sin. The whole human race has sinned against God, our creator, and is now corrupted by that sin. We have a sin nature, 
And unless we find a way to be forgiven and reconciled to God, we will face His divine judgment. But good news, God has Himself made a way for us to have precisely that. Um, How are we to be forgiven and to gain God's favor? What this book will be called, uh, we'll we'll call being justified, be be made right God. How is it that we are to to gain this solution to the problem of sin? The answer has been revealed, not by our working for it and earning it, not by our buying it with generous gifts and sacrifices, shock of shocks, not even by our obedience. God's solution, the only solution to the problem of sin is faith in Jesus, who was crucified in our place for our sins and raised to life again on the third day. You place your trust in Jesus to do what we cannot. We are not saved by being good, but by handing ourselves over to the Savior. I just saved you six weeks of preaching, right? (laughs) We are forgiven because the death and resurrection of Jesus has won forgiveness for everybody who will receive him as Lord and Savior. We are reconciled to God because through Jesus, we are made acceptable to God and brought in. If you want to be reconciled to God, go through Jesus. But Romans is a deep book, and it gives us this simple message in all of its profound depth. It's a lot more complicated in its workings than it may seem at first. Um, The message that the Apostle Paul was making sure that the church in Rome knew about raises some obvious questions, which are helpful for us to consider. For some in the first century, the original hearers of this letter, and it continues to be true in our day, the suggestion that justification, being made right with God, comes not by works, but by faith, is controversial. We don't like it. It doesn't, it's unfair. It doesn't seem right. Even amongst the religious, especially amongst the religious, this message is the opposite of what we expect to hear. God accepts good people we think. God is for the good and against the bad. Think of the poor Hebrew person sitting in this church in Rome in the first century, hearing this message that all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. This person who's been raised on the law of the Old Testament as the way to worship God. And if you were to ask them, how do you gain God's favor? How do you know that God accepts you? Who are the righteous ones that God accepts And they would likely have answered the one who is two things, a physical descendant of Abraham, the original ancestor of all of the Hebrews, and someone who keeps the law of Moses um, and the law um, of Abraham, most especially the laws around circumcision. I am confident, this is the worldview, that God accepts me because I am a child of Abraham who keeps the law. I am a good Jew. This is what they have believed all of their life. And to those ears, the message that both Jew and Gentile have equally sinned against God is incredibly offensive. And that both Jew and Gentile can be reconciled to God, not by working at it through the law, but by grace and through faith. Both parts of that message are disturbingly different, uncomfortably different to what they would expect someone who believes the word of God to say. It would have sounded like a different religion. And quite frankly, they're not the only ones to ever have raised this objection. Throughout the history of the New Testament church, 
many people have encountered the Bible and thought to themselves, the God of the Old Testament seems different to Jesus. There's, there's uh, many variations of this, of this erroneous thinking. Some have gone as far as to say they are in fact different gods. The, the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are different, irreconcilably different people. And aren't we glad that Jesus has replaced the evil God of the Old Testament? There are um, people here who are a part of this church, who I've had this conversation with, who find it hard to see the relationship between the two halves of the Bible. Jesus seems so kind and so approachable, and God in the Old Testament seems so stern and so judgmental. Um, And when we think this, we're making really two core mistakes. The first is that we're getting Jesus wrong. And the second is, we are failing to see that grace is absolutely littered throughout the Old Testament. Okay? We're getting Jesus wrong. There there is an anemic version of Christian teaching that gets around a lot today, which only looks at the kindness and mercy of Jesus and summarizes, this is the entire person of Jesus. There is nothing else to know about him and ignores all the times when we see people giving, uh, Jesus giving people a serve. For example, to the Hebrews who were confident that they were accepted by God because they were the children of Abraham. In John 8, we read of Jesus cornering a group of them and saying, you're not the children of Abraham. Because if you were the children of Abraham, you would do the sorts of things Abraham did. Abraham believed God. You're the children of the devil. You're doing what he did. He's the father of lies. He lies because it's in his nature to lie, and you do what he does. You're liars. You're children of the devil. This is Jesus, right? This is as true of him as the other things are true of him. Read the Gospels again. Uh, Jesus is not a fluffy bunny rabbit. Um, He's not all cuddles. He is gentle and lowly to those who come to him in the right way in faith and to those who oppose him. He has something to fear. Back then, to get people to murder you, to get you to shut up, took a bit of effort. And to get them to crucify you, you had to be really good at it. That's mistake number one, is to think... Uh, that Jesus is too fluffy. Jesus is love only. And therefore fail to see how he could be the same God as the God represented in the Old Testament. But the other mistake is that the God of the Old Testament is softer than it may seem, more welcoming and gracious than we may have thought at first. And this is what's happening in Romans chapter 4. Not only is the apostle showing us that grace grace and faith are central in the Old Testament... He's doing it by going right for the throat of the most common objection he's going to hear. He's going straight to Abraham himself and saying, if you want proof that the God of the Old Testament accepted people through faith, let me take you to the first Jew, the one in whom these people have a false confidence, the source of the confusion. You say that you belong to God because you are descended from Abraham. Where did Abraham's standing with God come from? Why does God accept Abraham? How was he reconciled to the God of heaven and forgiven for his sin? By being related to himself? It's ridiculous. No, it was not by his lineage that Abraham was acceptable to God. Was it because of his law-keeping life? No, as Mike so articulately showed to us last week, the man was a bit of a mess. Abraham was justified. Abraham himself was reconciled to God before he was circumcised. Abraham was reconciled to God by faith. Right there in the book of Genesis, the first book of your Old Testament. 
there is a radical harmony between the Old and the New Testaments. They don't tell different stories about two different gods. They don't describe two different ways of knowing God. Salvation through faith in God's grace is and has always been the only way to experience reconciliation with God. Salvation through faith in Jesus is exactly what was being promised to Abraham 4,000 years before you and I were born. What our passage today does is it introduces a few new implications of the idea that salvation is by faith uh, that we are yet to have considered at any depth. And why don't we pull them out of Romans chapter 4. The first implication is this. Because salvation, because justification comes to us by faith, it is certain. It is certain. We read this at the beginning of Romans 4, going from 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath. But where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. Do you feel that? Because salvation is by faith, salvation is guaranteed. It is certain. It is not uncertain. If salvation comes to us by obedience to the law, how do you know that you have it? When is it enough? At what point can you down tools and say to yourself, God has accepted me and I am, I am certain of his favorable judgment in the afterlife? At what point could you stand and say, I know that I have been reconciled to God if salvation is by your obedience? When is it enough? The answer, it is never enough. You can never be certain if that's how it works. If that's how it works, you will never be certain. As we've seen, it's actually impossible to gain God's kindness by this means. But even if it was, you would never be certain. You would be living your life hoping to gain God's favor by your obedience. And that is a recipe for disaster. Brothers and sisters, every, everyone I know, almost, without exception, who has abandoned the Christian faith, has secretly thought that this was true. Faith is exhausting, I hear them say. God is tiring. I'm tired of, of trying. When we, when we read Jesus' invitation, come to me and find rest for your souls, they know nothing of rest in their faith. And I would put it to you, it's because their faith is not faith. If you are working to impress God, God would be exhausting. That would make sense. But if you believe that God justifies the ungodly by faith in Jesus, then in Jesus the ungodly find rest. We are not working to impress God or to gain his favor. We are living a life overflowing with joy and thankfulness that we have his favor. 
that his mercy and his grace has been showed to us, not because we deserve it, because he has shown his grace to the undeserving. If salvation is by faith, it is guaranteed. The other apostle, the apostle John, will tell us that you may know that you have eternal life. There is nothing indefinite about it. You can know that you have it. Do you have it? You can know. You should know. Jesus has come that you would know that you have eternal life. And if you don't have it, you can have it. If you live your life hoping to gain God's favor by your obedience, you will either falsely convince yourself that you are doing it, that you're succeeding, that it's working, in which case you will cease to be able to grow because you will never be able to admit when you were wrong because to admit that you were wrong would cause your whole world to fall apart. It would threaten your very identity. But if you are accepted by God despite your flaws, you can ask for forgiveness because in being wrong we lose nothing other than some ego perhaps, which we are better off without. So they tell me. You will falsely convince yourself that you are doing it or, or you will live your life despairing of hope, knowing that in truth that you don't measure up and God will be a constant terror to you. You will wake up each morning and fall asleep each night thinking, I am failing and God is going to reject me. Today's the day when I will finally sit enough that he will abandon me. No, the message of Jesus is good news precisely because it is not a new law. It is not a to-do list. It is not a list of demands. It is a message of grace. It is an undeserved gift and an undeserved kindness because it depends on faith. It is guaranteed. It is certain. It is solid and it is stable. This is the foundation for a new life rather than a new heavy burden to place onto weak knees. Not on the treadmill of performance do we meet with God, but through the embrace of grace. Thus it is, and thus it has always been. Because salvation is by faith, it is certain. Here's the next thing that we see. Because salvation is by faith and not by law, it is available to all different kinds of people. In this room, that should be pretty good news. Can I just, just show hands if you're willing? Is anyone here genetically Jewish? It's not surprising to me that I'm not seeing any hands. There's, there's only so many around, right? I'm not. And here I stand as a part of the household of God. This is good news. Because salvation is by faith, you can tell me later if you're too embarrassed. Um, because salvation is by faith, it is for all different kinds of people. This is what it said to us in verse 16. It is not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. This is, this is where the song comes from. Father Abraham had many sons. I am one of them. In what sense am I genetically related to Abraham? Unless somehow there were some part of the Jewish diaspora living in Ireland in the 1700s. I'm not. 
He is the father of us all. Why? Because he's the father of all who share his faith. As it is written in verse 17, I have made you the father of many nations. That is a quote from the Old Testament. This is not a change. This is how it always was. When God first created the nation of Israel by calling the man Abraham, 2,000 years before Jesus was born, 4,000 years before we were born, right from the beginning, in the first book of your Bible, in the book of Genesis, right from the beginning, God declares his intentions as being global in their implication. Not for one kind of human being, not for one race, not for one nation, but for all peoples. God's promises to Abraham keep coming to him over the span of time recorded in a big chunk of the book of Exodus. There's a few different instances where God speaks to Abraham and gives him the next piece of information. Last week, Mike showed us how God made a promise, a covenant with Abraham in Genesis 12 primarily, that he was going to have offspring even though he and his wife Sarah were very old. When we get to Genesis chapter 17, a decade or two later, God speaks again with Abraham, still named Abram, and comes to him and again tells him, I am going to fulfill my promise to you that you are going to have a child. When God speaks to Abraham in Genesis 12, Abraham and Sarah are in their 80s. In Genesis 17, there's still no kid, and Abraham is 99. Someone going to be a muck with that kid, you know what I'm saying? I'm like, that's not right. There's, there's a long wait that has been happening, and God, for good reason, comes to Abraham again and says, yes, plan's still going ahead, you and Sarah still having kid. Nothing has changed. That business with the maid was a bad idea. And God, God's like, that's not my fault. You did that, right? Genesis 17, 4. Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be your God to you and to your offspring after you. Abraham's name is changed from Abram which means exalted father, revered father, lifted up father, to Abraham, which strengthens and intensifies its meaning. Some say it means father of a multitude. You can see where they get it from here in Genesis 17. Sarah, further down in Genesis 17, likewise has her name changed by God and strengthened so that we know her as Sarah rather than Sarai. God is going to keep his promise. My covenant is with you and you will be the father of of a multitude of nations who are the offspring of Abraham. Not his kids. Not his kids. Actually, we're going to hear that later on in Romans. There is another kid. He doesn't count. Ishmael is not the child of promise. He's descended from Abraham, isn't he? Not the physical descendants of Abraham, but the one who shares the faith of Abraham. 
is Abraham's child and the child of promise. And therefore it is for all who believe. I will make you father of a multitude of nations and kings shall come from you. Jesus the king being the highest and mightiest of them all. All who share in the faith of Abraham are just like Abraham accepted by God. You don't need to be Jewish. That's good news. You don't need to have been born in the right part of the world. You don't have to have been born in the right kind of family. You just have to do what Abraham did, which is believe God when he gives you a promise. And the promise of God to us is this. All who come to Jesus are saved. Place your trust in him. Stop working at getting my approval. Get it through Jesus. Come to me through him and and I'm yours. Give your life to Jesus the Savior. Lay it down. Lay down your efforts to make it right. Lay down your, your attempts at making yourself perfect. Come to me through him. I'll have you. And all who do are the children of Abraham and brothers and sisters. There are billions of us. How many have have shared this faith across the history of time and how many more are yet to come? We are in good company to trust the God of Abraham. Because salvation is by faith, it is for all the people's of the earth. Anyone who comes to God through Jesus is welcome. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. So come. Because here is the, the last implication I want you to see this morning. Because salvation is by faith, you can be saved. Yes, you. Romans 4.20 no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. Isn't that just like a generous description of Abraham, by the way? There was, some, there was some wavering early on. It got better over time. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, hear this, 423, the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Why did Jesus die? He died for us who believe. Why was he raised? to justify us who believe. This is, this is not an abstract lesson in interesting ideas. What we are reading in Romans 4 is an invitation from the God of heaven to come and to be reconciled to him by means of faith. It, it is a reminder to those of us who are already of the faith of Abraham, already drawing near to God through faith in Jesus. It is a reminder to us to rest in our assurance, which we should have. You, you can come 
is the point of all of this. Because salvation is by faith, you are welcome. Yes, you. You are welcome with God, not because of your deserving, not because of your worthiness. Believe his promise and come. That is the point of all of this. All who come through Jesus will be accepted. Not the worthy, the unworthy, the messy. Have you made a mess of it? Your faith will be counted as righteousness. Have you toyed with God in the past? Have the consequences of your bad decisions come back to haunt you? God is merciful because salvation is by faith. The prodigal can come home. You're welcome still. The foreigner finds welcome. The broken finds healing because it is by faith. It was counted to him as righteousness. That faith, that counts. Righteousness. Me and you are good. Those words were not for him, but for you. Which means that the God of heaven is today speaking to you if you are within the sound of my voice. You can come to God through faith in Jesus. He will have you. He will have you even now. So come. Come and experience the certainty of grace. Come and experience the welcome of grace for all kinds of people. Come experience the undeserved riches of lavish grace that the God of both Old and New Testaments has gone to a great deal of length to give to us. Let's pray. Father, as we read the early parts of the book of Romans, we saw the problem of sin. I have to confess that problem describes my life. It describes me. I have the problem of sin. I'm not good like you were good. I'm not good all the time. Never at any point in my life am I as good as I should be. Sin has affected me from the top to the bottom to the point where it is a part of my nature to oppose you. Lord, so I am so grateful that the solution that you have offered also describes me. No one is righteous, Lord. We are so grateful that your righteousness has been made available by a means other than the law. We thank you today for Jesus Christ, the righteous, who was crucified for my sin and who was raised for my justification. Lord, we thank you for Abraham, the man of faith, who deserved nothing that he ever received from you, and yet you gave it so willingly. And we pray 
that we would know and experience the fulfillment of your promise to him so long ago in this room today. That you would make him the father of a multitude, which includes us, who share his faith. Help us, Lord, to believe you. If there are any here today hearing this, who have yet to experience the kindness of grace from you, would you draw them near even now and assure them that if they come to you through Jesus, that they are welcome. That instead of trying to gain your favor from within, that they would lay down their life at the feet of the cross and walk into your kingdom as your free gift to them that they would be reconciled to you and know you in the way that we were created to know you and receive the certainty of eternal life. Lord, for those of us who do know you in this way, who do walk in the faith of Jesus, uh, we pray that even today you would meet with us and give us the gift of assurance. Help us to see ourselves in this moment through your eyes not to see ourselves as we see ourselves but to hear your good words spoken over us mine Lord we came here knowing that this week we were sinful still our performance is still after all this time not up to something which perfectly honours you we made mistakes we had a short fuse. We didn't take the opportunities to do good that you brought into our path. Our faith wavered. Would you accept us still? Because Jesus Christ was crucified and raised. Lord, we know you will. Remind me who I am in Jesus Christ. We pray in his name.